0: Well, I often say the reason we don't have a choir in this church is because you are the choir, and today you are certainly the choir, and that is fantastic. Thank you. Let's remember that, church. We are the choir that sings to the Lord. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 12. And we'll pick up in verse 9 and read through verse 19. If you don't have a sermon outline in your program, put up your hand. Uh, Jim Westbrook will get you one. Uh, We want everyone to have the scriptures if you need them. And chapter 12, of course, is about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem but in John's gospel it falls on the heels of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Okay? It's important to remember the context of this passage. Chapter 11 is about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And you will learn that the Pharisees are so upset by this that Jesus actually goes off into a lonely place into a hi- into hiding for a little while until he comes back strong and marches into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. And we pick up in chapter 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So far the reading of God's word. Jesus Christ is passing by. The one who will be revealed as the King of glory is passing by. How does your heart respond to Him? Jesus is passing by. What do you say about Him to your friend or your husband or your wife or your neighbor? Jesus Christ is passing by. How does your heart react to Him? One of the great things about Palm Sunday is that the events recorded here are written down in all four of the Gospels, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and also in the Gospel of John. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke really emphasize the... the, the fulfillment of the Zephaniah prophecy that Jesus is the King of Israel who comes in humbly on a donkey. And in those three Gospels, you have uh, this amazing juxtaposition of kingly glory and humility. And John captures that as well in his account. But, you know, the Gospel of John is often uh, comes from a different perspective on some of the issues of of uh, the life of Jesus, and he often is revealing people's hearts, responding to Jesus, and that's what happens here in chapter 12. We celebrate the revelation of Jesus Christ, but you know what John gives us is he gives us a very penetrating picture of a number of different responses to Jesus as he goes by, and he actually records them for our consideration here in this passage. Oh, how great it is to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is also humble and gentle and kind. Who would not marvel at Him? Who would not bow the knee before Him? Well, apparently there are people who are not interested and even hostile in fact, you'll see in your sermon outline there, I'm just going to note four kinds of responses that can erupt in our hearts. One is hostility. One response is a response of hostility. Another response is a response of excitement, where we get excited about Jesus insofar as He meets our agenda and fulfills our expectations. A third response, is, well, frankly, is a response of confusion. And the fourth response... Well, we'll get to that uh, in a couple of minutes. But the context here is Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem, and it is very upsetting to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the big players in Jerusalem, especially the big players at Passover. And this is Passover. And the the population of Jerusalem is about to erupt from about 50,000 people to upwards close to 200,000 people will come in. And this is the hour of celebration among the Jews and especially good for the Pharisees because they can show their control over the people and tell them how they are to live their religious life. But something has happened this year. There's this Jesus. And He has raised Lazarus from the dead. And the crowds are fascinated by Him and flocking to Him. And Jesus is upsetting the religious status quo. He's turning things upside down. And if you go back one chapter, and I recorded it in John 11. uh, I wrote on the back of your sermon outline. We read, before this triumphal entry... So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then down in verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death and then in our passage it says they decided they'd kill Lazarus as well did you pick up on that these Pharisees are very happy to have religion they really are they like religion but they will not have Jesus as Messiah they will not serve him as Lord our uh, church planter in Forest Hills, Michael Kitka. What a wonderful fellow he is. If you know anybody that lives down in Forest Hills that needs a church home, I urge you to send them over to Ascension Church. And I heard Michael Kitka talk about this passage, and he, he says, he says, John, you need to understand how we see the reaction of people to Jesus on this day. And he's right. And, and he, he told me at length about how down in Forest Hills, in, in Queens, there's, there really are a lot of vigorous and vehement reactions when people talk about Jesus. But even in churches, even inside churches, people can get distressed if you talk too much about Jesus. Hmm. Is that true? It is true. People will like religion and they will hate Jesus. I've mentioned before the first novel of Flannery O'Connor, the great uh, southern writer in the 1940s. Flannery O'Connor's first novel was entitled Wise Blood, and it's all about this character named Hazel Motes. Hazel's grandfather was a preacher, one of those Bible-preaching preachers, and Hazel despised and was embarrassed by his grandfather, but he became a preacher, an atheist preacher. And he said, I'm starting a church, and it's called The Church of Christ Without Christ. Hmm. What's going on? The New York Times really celebrated her novel when it came out in the 1940s. It was a severe critique of the churches in the southern part of the United States, in Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee, but it could have been New York too. She just lived in Mississippi, and, and she was so frustrated by how in the churches everything was so precious, sweet, and darling, and everyone was nice. But where is Jesus? Where is the radical agenda that turns the status quo on its head? Where's the preaching of the cross, the preaching of the gospel? You know, when Tay Pastor Tay and Pastor Martin and I were at Westminster Seminary, we had a professor in the preaching class named Dr. Bettler, John Betler. And Dr. Bettler would examine every one of us as we would preach, and four out of five times he would say at the end of the student's sermon, young man, I am afraid that that sermon would have been acceptable in any synagogue. Where was Jesus? Where was the cross? Isn't it strange how people can love religion and love all kinds of theology as long as you do not insist on the lordship of Jesus Christ? And people do respond vehemently to Him, both in the church and outside the church, when they discover that Jesus is going to change the way they think when he is going to change the way they act, when he's going to upset their priorities, all of a sudden the defenses go up, and it's very threatening. Last weekend we took a number of the youth group to see the movie God's Not Dead. Have you heard about this movie? Low budget, B-grade movie. But it's a real feel-good movie for Christians, and I, I recommend it. I enjoyed it, because what is a a movie? Movies are made with an agenda. This movie had an agenda. And movies have characters that are larger than life, and this film had characters that were larger than life in order to to drive home a very powerful message. And the good guys are really good, and, well, the bad guy is this atheist philosophy professor played by Kevin Sabo marvelously. And he's he's an atheistic philosophy professor who loves to demolish the faith of his students, unsuspecting Christians who come into his philosophy class. And at the beginning of it, he asks everyone to write on their paper, God is dead, and hand it in, so he doesn't have to mess with any of this theistic gobbledygook. But there's one student who won't do it. And the professor is furious. The professor is demeaning and hostile, and, he, and, and the, the, the whole movie then flows out of that moment. And, and finally, as the student really is making a good case for the Lord and, and speaking in class of why he believes his faith is rational and, and the scriptures are trustworthy and, and that creation makes sense with a creator, the, uh, the professor gets him after school, after class, and he says, I will crush you. You want to go to law school, I will see you never get into law school." And the next day in the class, the young man turns to the professor as they're going back and forth, and he says, why do you hate him so much? And I won't spoil the end of the story for you, but, but the professor makes it abundantly clear that his objections to Jesus Christ are not, at, ultimately, they are not intellectual. They are emotional, and they are moral. And he will not and does not want Jesus as his Lord telling him how to think, live, and act. Very interesting. What about you? Friends, inside every one of us, in our flesh, those of you who are Christians, when you are confronted by the claims of Christ, be suspicious, pay attention to your own heart. How do you respond to Him? And if you're not a Christian, do not be surprised if you find yourself coming up with arguments against Jesus and reasons to, re- to deny and refuse Him, okay? That's the first response. But then there's a second response of people, and, and they are like the crowd at Shea Stadium on opening day, Congratulations to Captain Mark Walker of the New York City Police. He's now in charge of all security at Chase Stadium. Wow, that's a challenge. City Field. Did they get a new stadium? <laughs> uh, I'm a Phillies fan. Anyway, we congratulations to you, Mark. That's a great assignment. But opening day at City Field, the flags are waving and the crowds are happy, and there's optimism and there's hope, right? There's hope, even for the Mets. And and the crowd is there. Why? Because, well, they see their champion coming. They see a champion. The fulfillment of Zechariah 9, verse 9, that marvelous passage that says that the, the king of Israel is going to come humbly but visibly with the praises of the people on the donkey. And Jesus comes in. And they're so excited on this day, but they are a fickle bunch, because in five days, the same crowd will shout, crucify him, crucify him, let his blood be upon us and our children. They're excited about him, and and that happens to people. They get a passing interest in Jesus Christ, especially if they think there's a political advantage to it. And I don't, I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but, you know, politicians, liberals, and conservatives love the invitation to come and stand in a church pulpit. People have sometimes said, John, why don't we ever have politicians come and say what they want to say? And I, my answer to them is the answer that Jesus gives to Pontius Pilate. If you look on the back of your sermon outline in John 18.36, Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Sure, the Bible does have something to say about government, and it does have something to say about the Christians' influence in culture. That's all very well and good, but make no mistake, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a spiritual kingdom that moves forward by spiritual power, and it is not given to just one nation, but it is transnational, transcultural, expands spans the ages. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom and He rules over you and me. He rules over the church for His glory. We are the holy nation of God. We are the people of God. North Shore Community Church, do you agree with me? This is a, this is, we are just not captured by our culture. People have this agenda for Him. And it's not always just a political agenda. I think more, if we're honest, especially in middle-class America, we want Jesus to get on board with our personal agenda. If it's not a political agenda, it's a personal agenda. And and Jesus, if you will help me in my upwardly mobile climb, well, then I'll come to your church. What is that? That's man-centered religion. That's religion being all about my... And here's what the psychologists call it. They call it my felt needs. And I know a lot of preachers, and I understand the temptation, preachers who say, you know, the key in the pulpit is preaching to felt needs. That's what we need. That's the only way your church is going to grow. You preach to felt needs, and people will come. If you tell them Jesus will solve your problems, people will come. Now, In our home fellowship groups, in our Sunday school classes, in our Bible studies, in our youth group, we apply the Bible to all of life, and it speaks to all of life, and it speaks to the problems that we face. That's very important in our discipleship here in this church. But one more time, when we gather on the Lord's day and come into the assembly of His people, it is to be Christ-centered, not man-centered. Does that make sense to you? because that's what we need more than having our eyes on our own navels and trying to figure things out. We need our eyes lifted up to Him and stayed on Him. Stayed. That's the old-fashioned way, right? Stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are surely blessed. Our, Our hearts fixed on the Lord. That's what we need. And I know, I know we are often lonely, and I know that parenting is hard, And I know that money is tight. And I know that you might do your homework. Teenagers, you do your homework, you study for tests, and you still get bad grades. And sometimes sometimes your friends turn on you, and that's painful, and you're not popular the way you'd like to be popular, and that's hard. But what you need most is not sermons on stress busting. But what you need is to be pointed to Jesus Christ, Sunday after Sunday, lifted up at, by His resurrection, Sunday after Sunday, filled with His Holy Spirit, Sunday after Sunday. That's what you need. Because if it's man-centered religion, well, we're fickle when Jesus is not the genie on the bottle that we want Him to be, right? Listen. Jesus wants to bless you. He does bless you, but He did not come just to bless you. Jesus Christ came from heaven into this world in order to recapture a renegade planet and to establish His kingdom and to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords and to then grab a hold of you and you and you and me, to grab a hold of us and to draw us into His grand cause. And as He does that, he blesses us, and He helps us, and He comforts us, and He guides us. Isn't that, that, does that fit? Don't get it upside down. He's not the genie in the bottle. He's the king. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So some people respond with hostility. Some people respond with a passing excitement. But there's a third group of people mentioned, and, and who are they? In verse 16. It's the disciples. What does it say about the disciples? His disciples did not understand these things at first. I think a better translation is, His disciples were confused by what was going on. It was all happening so fast. And the pieces of the puzzle haven't fallen into place yet for them. And they're confused, and they weren't sure of how, he's, how He really is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies uh, that the Messiah will fulfill. And they did not fully understand that you can't have the crown without first having the cross. They didn't understand that yet. And He goes on to say, until after He was glorified. Then they began to understand But the thing I like about what John is showing us here is he's showing us that even the disciples got confused and sometimes we do too. And that's okay. And I just want it to be clear in this church. We're all on a journey. We're all on a spiritual journey. And we're all growing. And that's a good thing. And sometimes I'm like the disciples. I'm, 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 I'm not sure about everything. I'm not sure what's going on. Are you allowed to have questions in the North Shore Community Church? Yes. And maybe, you know, you're here and you're saying, this whole church thing is kind of new to me, but I like what I see, and I'm enjoying what I'm hearing, All the pieces of the puzzle haven't fallen into place yet, but I sure enjoy the people and the bagels afterwards and the music is is helpful to me, and I'm starting to think about Jesus. One woman was at our Christianity Explored over these past number of weeks. We've had a wonderful six weeks that we closed out last Friday night. In her 50s, she said to the rest of the group, Nobody has ever told me that Jesus died for my sins. You mean to tell me Jesus died for my sins? To make me right with God? She never heard it. How could she have never heard it? There are people driving by. There are people you work with. There are kids in your school. They have never heard it. Let's get them on the journey. Let's get them on the journey. Friends, we have something called Explorations. We have a class called The Greenhouse. We have a Sunday school curriculum here. We have a youth group that meets. The purpose of these things is to help us on our journey, especially if you're new to the faith. Let me take you to lunch. Let's talk about the things of God. And to the rest of you, The rest of you who say, well, I'm not so confused, I think I do understand. Well, that's great, that's good, but be careful. Let's not communicate to those who are new to the authoritative message of the Bible and the the glorious Christ, people who are new to that. Let's not communicate to them that, well, unless you behave like, like we do, you really oughtn't be here. Because when the church does that, we sin against those people, okay? You know, people become sort of belongers. I'm not talking about church membership. Church membership is very important. It's very important. But I'm just talking about people sometimes become belongers to the group before they become believers. And they become believers before they become behaviors, <laughs> okay? that's what our discipleship helps people through that process. In my own life, can I just tell you, in my own life, I was a nutty 18-year-old kid. And I began to understand the power of God. And I began to understand the wisdom of God. But I did not understand the holiness of God. And my friends were very patient with this knucklehead. They were patient with me. Until, and here's the prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians 1. It's also on the back of your sermon outline. Paul prays that you, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. We need that enlightenment, don't we? And that should be your prayer. Oh, Lord, enlighten my heart and then transform my heart. So, First group of people, they're hostile. Second group of people, well, they're excited, at least for the moment, as long as Jesus fulfills their agenda. The third group, they're confused. But then in verse 17, he describes at least another subset of the crowd. And I'm not sure exactly that whole subset, but who are they? Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And this crowd understood something that all the others did not. What did they understand? At least in a preliminary way, what did they understand? That Jesus Christ conquers death And the word has spread among them what Jesus said to Mary and to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. And even if he die, yet he shall live. And this group, again, in a tentative, preliminary way, this group understands. Our Jesus is the conqueror of death and the grave. Death, the Bible says, is the last enemy. Death, the Bible says, is the great enemy. Death is the ultimate enemy. Death is the ultimate enemy for every one of us. And Jesus raises Lazarus, and Lazarus is in the entourage. The Pharisees want to put them both to death because they cannot ultimately bear that Jesus is the conqueror of death. But these people, what does it say about them? This uh, this translation says they continue to bear witness. The NIV translates it, they continue to spread the word. And so the Pharisees grieve. They say, look, the whole world is going to Him. And these people can't be silent. And all I'll tell you is that's the way it's supposed to be. In Christianity Explored, Rico Tice looked right into the camera a couple weeks ago, and he said, you'll remember He said, Jesus has authority over creation. Jesus has authority over uh, can forgive sins. Jesus has authority to teach with power, but Jesus has authority over death. Have you come to the place in your life where you trust Jesus with your own death? And I ask you that question today. Have you? Really? trust Jesus or should I trust myself? What about you? If you've never trusted Jesus, maybe today He is enlightening the eyes of your heart. Maybe today is a day when you say, wow, the puzzle, another puzzle piece has fallen into place. I need to trust Him, to receive Him, to believe in Him, to acknowledge Him. If you do, Then you need to join us and this fourth group of people and bear witness to Him. Spread the word. They are a picture of the church of Acts as the word continues to spread and continues to spread widely and with power. Well, the King of glory is passing by. How do you respond to Him? The crowd in a few days will shout, Crucify! The disciples will scatter, and the religious leaders will accomplish their mission to put Him to death. And I invite you to be with us Friday night at 730 as we ponder just what happened to our Savior on that night that He was crucified. But death could not hold him. And next Sunday morning, oh, next Sunday morning, we will celebrate. He arose from the dead, triumphant, and was crowned and appointed to be the Son of God with power, King of kings and Lord of lords. We are now going to embrace him in the Lord's Supper. If you're not a believer, well, this is a time for you to ponder. Is he waking up my own heart? We're going to bow our hearts before him. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I know that there is something in my own heart that often resists you. I know that there is something in my own heart that often wants my own way. You would fulfill my agenda, then I will let you be my Lord. And I know that there are many things about which I am confused. But I pray now, Lord, as I take, and for for my friends here, as we partake of the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, as we feed on the bread of heaven, as we taste the cup of the forgiveness of sins, that you will enlighten the eyes of our hearts and change us and make us bold and joyful witnesses to the one who conquered death and is our king. In his name we pray, amen. Communion in our church is a a very wonderful moment. For those of you who are members of our church or members of a church that preaches the gospel like we do, well, we say you're welcome to partake. It's a very solemn and sacred moment for us, so if you're not a member of a church, we just ask you to pass it by. Um, That's okay. There's actually prayers that you can pray uh, in in the bulletin and... um, Partake, But those of us, we who know the Lord, we are very hungry. I hope you're hungry for Him to minister to you and to strengthen you and to touch you and to encourage you. Feed on Christ. Our Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread and He broke it. And He gave it to His disciples. As I ministering in His name, give it to you. And He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's be quiet before him. You invite him to do some business in your own heart. take a little bit of bread is to embrace Jesus Christ by faith and to feed on him for strength and encouragement and hope. So take and eat and feed on Christ by faith. After supper, our Savior took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. All of you drink of it. Would you take a moment to ask the Lord to whom could you bear witness? To whom could you Spread the word about Jesus. If you have embraced him, then shine for him. It is the blood of Christ shed for you which preserves you to eternal life. Drink and be thankful. And we are thankful, our Father. We are amazed that the King would not take the crown without the cross, that he knew that the way to the crown was through the cross. And we pray with Christians around the world that this week you will bring to mind in unique and powerful ways in our lives just what you have done for us. And we gladly get on board with your grand cause to recapture this renegade planet with your love and your grace and your triumph. We are glad and we say Hosanna. In Jesus' name, amen.